This is a Federal News Network podcast. Post-traumatic stress disorder is one of those maladies that affects everyone differently and remains beyond any single cure. That's why the Veterans Affairs Department continually develops and tests new treatments. Here to give us a sense of the range of work going on with PTSD, the Director for Clinical Science, Research, and Development in VA's Office of R&D, Dr. Terry Gleason. Dr. Gleason, good to have you on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And I'm presuming what I said in the lead is correct, that PTSD is not really any one single thing, and nor does it affect every person affected by it in the same way. Is that fair to say? I think that's a very fair description. Absolutely. People bring their experience to PTSD, obviously. It starts with a traumatic experience. And so how individuals express that is also going to be different. And how do you go about researching, first of all, how it affects people? I mean, tell us what the research entails, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh, sure. So in our Office of Research and Development in the VA, we support research from what we call preclinical all the way through clinical and then all the way into practice, meaning putting our results right into practice clinical care in the hospitals. So we conduct studies that look at understanding the biological basis of PTSD, how to treat PTSD based on that understanding. And then when we get the results from clinical trials, as I mentioned, we try to move them right into clinical practice. So essentially across the entire research spectrum. And is one of the difficulties the fact that unlike, say, traumatic brain injury, which is a visible pathology in slides and so forth, PTSD affects people in some degree depending on what personality and what experiences they have prior to the events that led to the PTSD. And therefore, the different psychological makeup of people could affect how the PTSD manifests itself. I imagine that's a really tough variable. It is a tough variable, and what it means is that we have to understand all of the risk factors, also what an individual is bringing forward, again, as they are exposed to a traumatic experience, and then how it's received after the experience. So it is a very individual question that you're asking, but I think in terms of scientific research, what that means is we count on our veterans to participate in our studies, and the numbers that we need to complete our studies are usually quite robust. So we need a lot of volunteers, and by putting all of that data together, we can make the strongest conclusions about what's working and what isn't working. And for a veteran to be willing to volunteer, they have to know they have PTSD, or at least if they know it, they have to acknowledge it and understand that the VA is not putting any sort of stigma on it. Such a good point. Yes, we'd like to reduce the stigma around PTSD, but for a clinical trial, for example, if we were examining the benefit of a particular therapy, the individuals that are enrolled in the trial would have to be assessed for PTSD to begin with in order to participate. And then, of course, it's all based on their volunteering to participate in the research as well. And what kind of data do you gather to be able to look at it in an objective way with all of these volunteers? Objectively, we have assessments, and these assessments have been tested and validated as well. Standard assessments to determine what PTSD symptoms are present, 
what level of PTSD in terms of severity is present, and then compare, for example, after initially assessing an individual at the end of a trial in some cases, did that change? Hopefully improved with a new intervention as an example. But we also collect other data we might be looking at associated conditions. You mentioned TBI earlier, and oftentimes TBI is associated with PTSD. So we want to consider that in the final analysis. And other components might include genetic factors, history of trauma, and so forth. So it's usually a pretty in-depth assessment. We're speaking with Dr. Terry Gleason. She's Director for Clinical Science Research and Development in VA's Office of Research and Development. And what are some of the recent learnings of PTSD? What do we know now that we didn't know, say, five, ten years ago? I think VA has been at the forefront in many, many stories of success across the research program. Years ago, for example, VA established strong evidence for the benefit of psychotherapy, particular types of psychotherapy in particular are successful in reducing PTSD symptoms. And so over time, using therapy also continue to pursue how best to deliver that. There might be cases where individuals start therapy, begin to feel better, and then they may drop out of treatment because it's long. It takes a long time to get through treatment. And so studies conducting about, can we shorten therapy? Can we improve upon the therapy? in order to keep people engaged and successful all the way through remission of symptoms. Those are a particular story of success, but VA is also working on determining what medications might be more successful. I think the last FDA-approved medications were approved in 2001. So it's been a long time and a lot of work between now and then to try and figure out Are there other areas under the biological underpinnings of PTSD that we can target with drugs and even new drugs? So we're conducting a lot of studies regarding medication and the combination of medication with psychotherapy. And you mentioned something I want to just follow up on a little bit, that in looking at the biological effects of PTSD, there are biological effects in the sense that TBI also has biological effects. Is that correct? Yes, of course. The reaction from a trauma can include overexpression of the biology, if you will, and understanding what might be targeted in that overexpression is really important. Something like a sleep disturbance, for example, we could be able to treat with a medication. Those are the types of questions that we continue to support in VA research. And in doing this research, of course, the veterans themselves are all over the place. They live across the country from coast to coast. So how do you ensure that the research done with a group in one coast is consistent with the way it's conducted, say, with a group in the other coast and a third group somewhere in the Midwest, such that you have comparable research being done in a national level? Yes, it's such an important question. And VA brings the most unique strength to this. And that is, as a national healthcare system, we can conduct, and we do conduct, uh, multi-site clinical trials. So it's not uncommon for us to have 10 different sites across the country participating in the exact same protocol. So train the scientists, the docs that are collecting the data to adhere to the protocol at every single site, and every single participant then 
is tested in the same way. So the results will be comparable. And I think that's just a great feature for VA to bring to the table. And just for those that might be uninitiated and perhaps encounter a veteran, what are the most common manifestations externally of PTSD? Right. So there is a constellation of symptoms, as you mentioned. So the re-experiencing of the trauma, a hyperarousal is also very common, and there might be an overreaction. People might be on edge. Stress comes into play. Sleep disorders come into play. And so I think over time, if that behavior continues or that manifestation continues, that's the point at which individuals should seek treatment, should talk to their doc about what's going on and what could be done to help because treatment is successful. There are successful treatments for PTSD and we really encourage individuals and their loved ones to help seek treatment. And just a final question, how do you get best practices for treatment out of VA and into, say, the psychotherapeutic field for therapists that may not be connected with VA? Because often there's this perception only a veteran can understand a veteran. And I imagine that limits just the quantity of help that might be available. Right. Well, I think in the clinical science field, as we find results from our research, it does have applicability wider than the veteran population. So some of the assessments that I had mentioned earlier would also be used in the general community. Our VA National Center for PTSD is the place, the resource for clinicians to look for information. And I will mention one other thing, if you don't mind. We have a coach application for PTSD that's picked up worldwide And that helps not only an individual assess their own symptomology, but also provides treatment resources as well. Dr. Terry Gleason is Director for Clinical Science, Research, and Development in VA's Office of Research and Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction 
which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader 
in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you gotta go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, 
Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. SMS text, 9.32 p.m. Hey, man, I'm not home yet. Grabbing a quick drink with my lady friend, LOL. But just wait for me there, dude. The spare key is under the big gray planter by the garage. Peace. When you send messages on SMS, someone else could be reading them. With end-to-end encryption, WhatsApp ensures that your personal messages are your personal messages. WhatsApp. Always message privately. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.